Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Luhoko and Msibudi Makura. In our top stories... On Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, UN continues to cooperate with the DRC military. South African President Jacob Zuma faces harsh criticism and UN Security Council resolution backs new Ukraine ceasefire deal. In economics, South Africa urged to consider nuclear power generation. And in sports news, Rwanda to host the 2016 African Nations Championships. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. The United States, Britain, France, Germany, Italy and Spain are calling on a political solution to the crisis in Libya. They issued a joint statement amid calls for military action in the violence-wrecked country. The statement came ahead of a UN Security Council meeting on Libya today. The Egyptian and Libyan foreign ministers are expected to brief the council on the issue. Yesterday, Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi said creating a UN-backed coalition was the best cause of action to rid Libya of extremists. Egypt started airstrikes on suspected terrorists in Libya on Monday. The United Nations maintains it continues to cooperate with the military of the DRC against armed rebel groups in that country. This despite officially having withdrawn support for the army's operations against the Democratic Forces for the Liberation of Rwanda rebel group. Joint operations against the FTLR were expected to commence after the group missed a firm deadline to disarm by January 2nd. UN spokesperson Fahan Haq says the UN will however continue to work towards neutralizing the threat posed by the FTLR. Over the past several months that we had been building up preparations for action to be taken against the FDLR if they did not dis- disarm by the beginning of this year, which, as you are aware, they did not do. Given that, it was very important for us to be able to work jointly with the Congolese armed forces uh, to deal with the threat posed by the FDLR. We still intend to, to deal with that threat, and we hope that we can work with the Congolese armed forces on this. You've seen what our concerns are, and, and they need to be addressed. South Sudan says rebels are trying to capture rank after ahead of peace talks, blaming them for a shelling attack in the key northern oil town. Defense Minister Cole Manyang says rebels hit several sites in rank on Monday and yesterday. 
South Sudan plunged into chaos in December 2003 after President Silva Kiir accused his former deputy Rahik Machar of attempting to stage a coup. The Intergovernmental Authority on Development has set a March 5th deadline for Kiir and Machar to reach an ultimate truce. Malawi is poised to adopt a law banning child marriages in a country which has one of the world's highest rates of underage weddings. The country's parliament last week unanimously approved the bill which raises the marrying age to 18 from the current minimum of 16. Under Malawi's rules, President Peter Mutarika has three weeks to sign the Marriage, Divorce and Family Relations Bill. After its approval by lawmakers tomorrow, the bill carries a 10-year prison sentence for those who defy the ban. And finally, AIDS has become the leading cause of death for adolescents in Africa and the second leading cause of deaths among adolescents globally. Eight international organizations, global health agencies, say about 120,000 people aged between 10 and 19 died of AIDS-related illnesses in 2013. They say in South Africa, more than 860 girls became infected with HIV every week in 2013, compared to 170 boys. Global Health has launched a global campaign in Kenya. It's aimed at stemming the spread of AIDS among adolescents. That's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, and it's 8.05 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The United Nations maintains it continues to cooperate with the military of the DRC against armed rebel groups in the country, despite officially having withdrawn support for the army's operations against the democratic forces for the liberation of Rwanda or FDLR rebel group. The UN has withdrawn its support for actions against the FDLR after the DRC government refused to remove two generals accused of human rights abuses from the command structure of the operation. Joint operations against the FDLR were expected to commence after the group missed a firm deadline to disarm by January the 2nd. Show and Bryce Peace reports. It's a partnership that unraveled in a matter of a few weeks. From extensive joint planning on operations against the FDLR to the complete withdrawal of support on all FDLR ops, UN spokesperson Farhan Haq explains. You've seen what our concerns are about making sure that any actions that are taken are undertaken in accordance with our human rights due diligence policy. And you've heard our concerns, uh, in particular about uh, General Falsikabwe, and General Bruno Mandevu and, and the contingents under their command. And, uh, of course, we continue to be in dialogue with the government of the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and we hope that this issue will be resolved. The UN mission in the DRC had been providing supplies, including non-lethal equipment to the DRC army, while attack helicopters, drones and blue helmet troops would have backed FARDC maneuvers against the rebels. 
Listen to my exchange with Farhan Haq. How do you respond, though, to the view that there's been a strategic undermining of the UN's role in this operation by the DRC authorities? That there's a trust deficit between the UN and the FARDC? Once our concerns are, are addressed, I, I believe we've made clear that we want to make sure that, uh, that our human rights concerns are taken into account. Uh, if, if, and that we can be sure that the contingents that are going in to this operation, uh, we can trust uh, that either the questions about cons- of our concern about the command are taken care of, or alternately other sufficient mitigating measures have been put in place. But one way or another, we, we need to make sure ultimately that these are troops whose human rights operations, uh, whose operations we can trust from a human rights perspective. Once those concerns are addressed, we can proceed on that basis. The UN had been in joint preparations for the operations against the FDLR, but plans began to unravel in late January when the FARDC unilaterally announced it was taking on the FDLR without UN assistance. Farhan Haq says the UN will however continue to work towards neutralizing the threat posed by the FDLR. You're well aware over the past several months that we had been building up preparations for action to be taken against the FDLR if they did not dis- disarm by the beginning of this year, which, as you are aware, they did not do. Given that, it was very important for us to be able to work jointly with the Congolese armed forces uh, to deal with the threat posed by the FDLR. We still intend to, to deal with that threat, and we hope that we can work with the Congolese armed forces on this. You've seen what our concerns are, and, and they need to be addressed. The UN says it's also not aware that any military operations against the FDLR, led by the FARDC, have as yet commenced. I'm Sherwin Bricepies in New York. Our question to you this morning is, do you think military action against rebels in the DRC will be a success without the UN intervention? Give us your thoughts and your views on this issue. Email us on info at channelafrica.org. Send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905 or get a hold of us on Twitter at Rise Shine Africa or at Channel Africa 1. Do you think military action against rebel Rebels in the DRC will be a success without the UN intervention. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Winning back territory taken by the Islamic State terrorist group, or ISIL, is Iraq's most pressing goal, according to the special representative of the UN Secretary General for the country. Nikolay Mlandanov briefed the Security Council in New York yesterday on the latest developments in Iraq. Armed conflict and acts of terrorism continue to inflict a terrible toll on the population, with more than 12,000 civilians killed in 2014. Stephanie Kutrix reports. More than 2 million people in Iraq have been forced from their homes since January 2014 due to the rise of ISIL. $150 million U.S. million is urgently needed to support those people. 60% of humanitarian operations are likely to shut down or curtail unless funding is received in the next few weeks. The Secretary General Special Representative for Iraq, Nikolai Mladenov, said he is sounding the alarm bells. 
The food pipeline will break in mid-May unless funding is received before the end of March. The essential medicines pipeline will break at the end of March. ISIL continues to terrorize communities in Iraq. Mr. Mladenov said the government there has taken important measures to fight against terrorism. The authorities have pledged to provide military and financial assistance to local leaders and tribal fighters to aid their struggle against ISIL. I encourage the government to empower and quickly provide all necessary means to these local fighters as they seek to free their homes from ISIL while also supporting recovery and reconstruction. Meanwhile, the Iraqi ambassador to the UN, Mohammed al-Hakim, said there is no alternative to international cooperation to combat terrorism. Many occasions have proven that no state is safe from the threat of terrorism. We look forward to a more effective role, particularly from neighboring countries, in cooperation and intelligence sharing, controlling borders, because these terrorist groups have desecrated all human values. As ISIL remains in control of most of Iraq's western provinces, the UN is appealing to the international community to support humanitarian operations, which it says will make a decisive difference for the country's future. And that report by Stephanie Kudrix. It's 8.13 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Going back in time to today in 1998, Kenneth Kawunda, the former president of Zambia, is charged with concealing information about a failed coup. In June, the charges are dropped and Kawunda is freed from house arrest. Former AM Live current affairs show anchor John Pullman tells us more. While the world's attention is focused on the plight of former Zambian President Kenneth Kaunda, who is under house arrest, other members of the Zambian opposition who are also imprisoned go virtually unnoticed. Among those detained is the President of the Zambia Democratic Alliance, Dean Mungomba. The Zambia Democratic Alliance won the second highest total of votes in the country's last election. And that clip was courtesy of the SABC archives. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka, Na Unai. The UN Security Council has unanimously passed a resolution backing a new ceasefire agreement on Ukraine, endorsing an agreement calling for an end to the fighting and respect for the country's sovereignty. The Russian-drafted resolution lends council support to a package of measures for the implementation of the Minsk agreements adopted and signed on February 12th this year. But amidst the rare action by the Security Council over the escalating crisis in Ukraine, there were firm positions on who was to blame for the crisis. Show in Bryce Peace reports from the UN in New York. Minutes before the resolution, Council issued a press statement expressing grave concern at continued fighting around Debaltseve, a key transport hub in eastern Ukraine, despite the ceasefire being in place since February 15th. Sir Mark Lyle Grant of the United Kingdom speaking after the resolution passed. The ceasefire has now been in place for two and a half days. OSCE reporting suggests that it has been respected in the majority of the Donbass.
However, intense fighting continues around Debalt Sever, where heavy shelling and street-by-street -street fighting has resulted in scores of casualties. This flagrant disregard of the ceasefire is deeply concerning and risks undermining the Minsk package in its entirety. The fighting for Debalt Sever must stop and any detained soldier must be treated humanely. Russia's ambassador Vitaly Cherkin says his country will work to fully implement the Minsk agreements and encourage both sides to avoid unilateral measures. Since the very start of the crisis, Russia has actively called for a peaceful settlement through inclusive, transparent dialogue between the sides in the internal Ukrainian conflict, and it's done its utmost to ensure that open conversations be established on fundamental political and constitutional issues. We will adhere to this fundamental approach in the future also. But the United States, which often engages in public sparring with Russia over the issue of Ukraine, wasn't buying it. Ambassador Samantha Parr. We've gotten used to living in an upside-down world with respect to Ukraine. Russia speaks of peace and then fuels conflict. Russia signs agreements and then does everything within its power to undermine them. Russia champions the sovereignty of nations and then acts as if a neighbor's borders do not exist. Ambassador Power again accused Russia of manufacturing and continuing to escalate the crisis in Ukraine. Even as Russia puts forward this resolution, separatists that Russia has trained, armed, and that it fights alongside are laying ruthless and deadly siege to the Ukrainian-held city of Debalcheva, approximately 30 to 40 kilometers beyond lines established by the September Minsk agreements. Lithuania's ambassador Raimonda Murmukaite argued that it was difficult for Ukraine's government to engage in constitutional reforms and dialogue while it had a gun pointed at its head. There are hundreds of tornadoes, howitzers, whatever it is. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, these things don't drop out of the sky, so somebody's supplying them. And, and looking at the geography, these things can come only from one direction, where the borders are completely porous and away from the international eyes. More than 5,000 people have died in eastern Ukraine, while some 1.5 million have been displaced in fighting with pro-Russian separatists. I'm Sherwin Bricepees in New York. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. A number of South African opposition parties debating last week's State of a Nation address in Parliament have come down hard on President Jacob Zuma. The DA has accused Zuma of breaking down democratic institutions to try and fix his legal predicament. And the EFF said it will meet him on the 11th of March when he will be answering oral questions in the House. The UDM is calling for a commission of inquiry into the chaos that broke out on Thursday evening when EFF members were forcefully removed from the House. Lula Mamadia reports. Arts and Culture Minister Natim Tetwa led the debate. Mtetwa's message was on reconciliation and nation building. He has urged South Africans to find the Mandela within their hearts. The long walk to nationhood begins with the smallest steps when we begin to learn one another's languages, to tolerate each other's cultures and religion, to listen to each other's fears and aspirations, 
to understand our pains and our dreams. That way we begin to find the Mandela within us. DA parliamentary leader Musi Maimane accused President Zuma of breaking down democratic institutions, including parliament, so that he can escape accountability for the wrongs he has done. Maimane mentioned SARS, NPA and SIU as just some of the institutions that President Zuma is targeting, so he cannot be held accountable. But he said, change will come. Change may seem slow, but it is coming. There is a swell starting to build, and when the wave crashes, it will sweep away this broken man out of power. When that, when that happens, we will be there to start fixing our broken society and unleash the potential of every South African. EFF leader Julius Malema put emphasis on the land issue and the use of labor brokers. Malema said President Jacob Zuma's formula for land ownership is not the solution. He also said government has failed the employees of industries that employ through labor brokers. We have to save these people by removing you from political office and take political power on behalf of the people. Whatever it takes, however long it takes, by whatever revolutionary means, we will take over this country with the aim of total liberation and emancipation. No amount of violence and harassment will stop us from taking over this country. We will do so as a generation with a mission. IFP leader Mangosutu Gutelezi commended government's work on fighting HIV and AIDS. He, however, blamed the government for bailing out state-owned enterprises, saying that they should be privatized. We can comment on the strides which the government has made in fighting HIV and AIDS. In this case, we give credit where credit is due. We all appreciate what the government is doing as far as this scourge is concerned. But in so many other areas, the ANC doggedly pursues bad policy. The NFP focused on the events that took place in the House during the State of the Nation address. NFP Member of Parliament Malia Keshelembe explains. We are all horrified by the scene of a mob of hooligans storming into this August House organized and called in by the Speaker of the Day. I specifically use the term mob of hooligans because even up to now, we still have no clarity on who they were. ANC Deputy Chief Whip Doris Lagude emphasized the role the South African government is playing on the international front. The ANC will continue to play a critical role towards restoring peace across Africa first and foremost by taking action and speaking out against acts of terrorism that directly affected the men, women and children of this great continent of ours. UDM leader Bandu Olomisa has called for a judicial commission of inquiry to probe Thursday night's events in the National Assembly. Truth be told, the scandals associated with our president have replaced the role of this house and divided the nation in the middle. It is no longer about the citizens of this country. 
the president has presided over the vicious attacks on the institutions of our democracy. Confidence in our judicial system is under pressure due to many cases involving him in our courts. In the process, investor confidence is diminishing with the lowest ever economic growth rate. The debate continues today and President Zuma will reply on Thursday, Lula Mamaja Parliament. It's 8.24 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Let's go back in time to the year 1992 today. Libya produces two men accused of blowing up an American jetliner over Lockerbie, Scotland, but insist they'll never go to trial in the West. And that was today in history in the year 1992. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Ministers from African countries have agreed to launch a decade of civil registration and vital statistics, CRVS, covering 2015 to 2024. This with the goal of leaving no child out and no country behind in the effort to register all births and vital events in Africa. The ministerial meeting took place last week in Yamusukru, Ivory Coast. For more on this, Tutongobeni spoke to Chikezi Anyanyu, Pan-African Program Specialist at Plan International Liaison Office to the African Union. Civil registration and vital statistics has to do with everything about your registration at birth from when you were born to when you die. So it includes birth registration, it includes registration at school, at hospital, to vote when you turn 18, when you get married, that is registering your marriage, and of course, unfortunately, when you die, to register you at the point of death. So uh, that's, in a summary, what the whole picture of civil registration vital statistics means. You've asked about the decade for civil registration, which the African ministers have just endorsed at their last conference in Yamasukuro, Côte d'Ivoire, Ivory Coast, which is the third conference of African ministers who are responsible for civic registration vital statistics. Why is it important? Why this decade? That is from 2015 to 2024. It's important because this is when African governments have made a commitment that no child, nobody, will be left out. Everybody, hopefully by 2024 in Africa, will have some form of registration, either a birth registration, you know, which then goes on to give you the power to ask for nationality in regards to national registration, an ID card, or a national passport, and so on and so forth until we all die. And the hope is that by 2024, every African child Boy, girl, man, woman will have some form of registration. How important is civil registration and vital statistics or CRVs are in the continent's development and inclusive growth? 
it's important because it's not just about knowing who your citizens are. It's not just about giving right to everybody to have an identification, to have a nationality or to know who they are. But it's important for social planning. It's important for economic planning. It is important for enrollment and for social provisioning. For example, you, with it, you'll be able to know how many children you have in your population to be able to plan for them for educational or the health services needs provisioning. It is important for economic planning for you to know how many citizens are you going to provide social services for water, hospitals, electricity, housing, and even pensions. That's why I say it's at the heart of both social and economic planning. And for Africa to to rise, as we say, it is rising, uh, to get to the next level and to actualize all the other goals we've aspired for ourselves as a continent, it is important that we know who are these Africans, where are they, how many of them are under five, how many of them are young people that need employment, that need education, that need health services, that need reproductive health services, how many of them are old age people who need support services at the community level. So it is very vital for social and economic planning and provisioning. In the age of technology, how important also will it be uh, when implementing this uh, CRV system on the continent in terms of embracing technology? I would say technology is important for this vision of the decade to happen. Why is this so? Because increasingly Africa is revolutionizing when it comes to technology, especially in the telecommunication and IT arena. How is it important for this? It is key because technology has all of a sudden opened up parts of Africa that hitherto was difficult to assess by officials who are responsible for registering birth, for registering debt, for registering marriages, for registering school enrollment, for registering all other sorts of... So with the latest advance in technology, which includes use of mobile phones, digital technology, and all that, it is now easier to penetrate hitherto rural and unaccessible areas of Africa, which before a lot of the officials who are responsible for civic registration vital statistics could not assess. So technology is definitely going to give a boost to this uh, dream of the decade come 2024. And the revolution of communication technology across the continent would definitely give this particular move a good boost. And when should we expect this process to start? Will it start immediately? Has it started? The process has already started. I'll give you a few examples. For Plan International that I work for, we've been known for championing, promoting and advocating for BART registration for more than 30, 40 years. We've been operational in Africa and beyond. So for us, BART registration and the whole movement for it has been something that we've been campaigning and lobbying for. And we've been working with different governments at different levels where we are operational to ensure that BART registration and the children have a right to be registered once they're born. Now, so it's not that governments are just starting now. No. A lot of African governments have started initiatives that ensure that people are registered, children are registered, births are registered, school enrollment is registered, hospital visits are registered, marriages and all that are registered. But unfortunately, a lot of these 
data and statistics are in different departments and different sectors. Now, one of the things that this whole process is trying to do is to pull it together under a national centralized system that is now better managed, coherent, and better coordinated. Now, like I said earlier on, it is not like starting now. It has already started in many countries. Different countries are at different levels when it comes to the operationalization of their civic registration vital statistics national uh, systems. But unfortunately, a lot of it also has happened in desperate departments and agencies. So what this decade is trying to do is to ensure that in every country it is harmonized, it is better coordinated, it is centralized and easily made accessible to the various sectors that need it. That was Chikezi. Anyanyu, Pan-African Program Specialist at Plan International Liaison Office to the African Union on the line from Addis Ababa, speaking to Tutungubeni. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. Good morning. Suicide attackers detonate two bombs in Biu in northeastern Nigeria, killing at least 14 people. The superpower countries call on a political solution to the crisis in Libya and a new platform of action to fight the HIV-AIDS epidemic among adolescents is launched in Nairobi in Kenya. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you, Anne. The current Ebola crisis in Africa is among the many issues that took center stage at the World Innovation Summit for Health in Doha, Qatar. While some delegates call for increased efforts in addressing emerging health such as this one, others question the origin of the current outbreak. Our reporter Elizabeth Ledicha reports from the summit. For months, the global community has watched in horror as the largest Ebola epidemic ever known spread from Guinea in West Africa to neighboring Liberia, Sierra Leone and beyond. Medical experts say the total number of deaths thus far is more than 40 times that of the previous highest death toll recorded. The Ebola epidemic has killed nearly 9,000 people since it began. During the opening panel session at the World Innovation Summit for Health, founder of the Qatar Foundation, Honorable Sheikh Amoza bint Nazir, pointed out that people need to talk about the origins of the current epidemic. We shouldn't talk about uh, human rights and health care, but we should improve its implementation. Providing basic health care for all is not the only concern we share globally. Collective challenges include the emergence of new and serious epidemics. And it's no longer providing health care and basic health care only. It concerns the emergence, the sudden emergence of new and serious epidemics. And we talk much about their reasons and Ebola. These illnesses come from unconventional origins and they are outside our traditional health care concerns. Does this mean that from time to time the world is susceptible to the invasion of such epidemics? Do we ignore the skeptic voices that question the origins of these diseases? 
His take on the Ebola outbreak, Professor Lord Dazi, who is the chairperson of WISH, is that the global health community was too slow to grasp the significance of the epidemic. I think the health community, the global health community, was asleep when Ebola was happening. I think despite the facts and the data in front of us, I think there was very little intervention in the early days. So it essentially became, it went out of control. He adds that going forward, the world needs to draw lessons from this experience. There's one lesson to learn is that we need to be vigilant. We need to measure, number two. When we measure, we need to act. There's no point in just measuring and reporting it. We need to act quickly. What are the other innovations we can do is, I think most of this is public health messages. And one of the biggest challenges in Ebola was how could we teach the local population with some simple principles of public health? Uh, as you will know, uh, this was related to burials, this was related to hand washing and all sorts of other and contact and I think there's a lot to be learned from communicating the messages uh, and taking away individual fears about this uh, and uh, and I think that is extremely important is we need to get that information to the local population so there's a lot to learn from Ebola with no specific treatment or vaccine available against Ebola, no a rapid diagnostic test that can be deployed in countries with weak health systems, many agree innovative solutions are needed if countries are to bend the curve on Ebola. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Elizabeth Lidira in Doha, Qatar. Sierra Leone's audit service has released a damning report about massive corruption in the management of Ebola funds since the outbreak of the epidemic last May. Millions of dollars are reported to have been diverted by government institutions, NGOs, civil society, politicians and individuals. Channel Africa's Lansana Forfana reports from Freetown. According to the Auditor General's report, a total of $14 million was discovered missing from funds meant for the Ebola response and that these were diverted by various institutions, agencies and individuals. The audit report, which focused on procurement and disbursement, including cash and bank management, roped in many key state institutions as well as non-state actors. These include the very National Ebola Response Committee, NAC, which is in charge of coordinating the Ebola response, the Ministry of Health, civil society organizations, NGOs, parliamentarians, and even State House, the seat of the presidency. These are hungered Sierra Leoneans who are utterly frustrated at the resurgence of the Ebola disease with figures going up every day, and they are angry and calling for an immediate start of investigations into the scandal. These people are heartless to steal $14 million out of the Ebola fund while our people are still dying. Uh, it is unbelievable. The Anti-Corruption Commission should investigate them, and if anyone is found wanting, should be jailed. If they don't do that, I don't see how Ebola will end. Our people are still dying. This is embarrassing and very shameful in our country. At the time when we are expecting this Ebola to end, people are going around stealing up to $14 million, which is very shameful. This time the government should deal with all those that are culpable or that are wanting. And the anti-corruption must be robust this time to prosecute all those that are involved in this stealing. 
The Anti-Corruption Commission has indeed today opened up investigations into the scandal and President Koroma has given his blessings to the Commission's work. Here is his reaction on state television. Any persons found to have falsified this or taken advantage of the system will be investigated. We will not let the heroic works of our burial teams, swervers, doctors, nurses, lab technicians, surveillance officers and others be tainted by those wishing to take advantage of the situation for their own personal gain. What comes out clearly in the audit report is that many recipients of the Ebola funds either falsified documents or simply refused to give details of expenditures and disbursements. Procedures were also not followed. In some instances, recipients caused the payment into their personal accounts tens of thousands of US dollars and not into the accounts of their organizations or institutions. Speaking to journalists, Ibrahim Tomi, head of the highly respected rights advocacy group Center for Accountability and Rule of Law, says the report is troubling. The findings are quite disturbing. They are disturbing even if not surprising. I mean, anyone who has been living passively um, reading or following the work of the Audit Service Commission should have realized by now that because of the failure to implement recommendations by the Audit Service Commission, um, things like this we are bound to happen at some point. But what is even more uh, disgraceful about this is the fact that this is a humanitarian crisis. While the world was pouring out grief, international and locals were supporting our fight through donations. Others were basically busy, um, basically doing the wrong things. Tommy's concerns about the implementation of the Auditor General's report are well in place. Oftentimes, these reports come out to the public domain, but hardly are the recommendations implemented. And that is why people here are worried about the efficacy of any investigations carried out by the country's anti-gripe body. For now, though, they can only wait and see. Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Meanwhile, the production of rice has fallen by over 8% in some parts of Guinea in West Africa as a result of the Ebola crisis, according to the UN Food and Agriculture Organization, FAO. The deadly virus, which has left more than 9,000 people dead, mainly in Guinea, Liberia and Sierra Leone, has disrupted the trade in food across the affected region. Now, the World Bank is teaming up with FAO on a 5 million US dollar program to prevent the spread of Ebola and to support the production of food as well as income generation. Sandra Ferrari asked FAO's Vincent Martin, who is based in West Africa, how rural communities in Guinea are bearing up in the face of Ebola. The situation has evolved uh, during the last months, and you've seen in the media and, uh, that the, the number of cases is decreasing, the number of deaths is decreasing. And therefore, there is a feeling of relief in uh, some of these communities, although we know that the situation is still fragile and very volatile. And everybody has to keep the vigilance very, very high so that it doesn't flare up again. And when we look to the agricultural sector, what is the state of those areas at this point? 
particularly in Guinea, when we did our impact assessment in the country, the impact was around overall for several was around 3 to 4% reduction, while it was a little bit higher in the most affected areas of, uh, of Guinea, such as Zerekore, where the drop in rice production was around 8.5%. What was more important uh, during the crisis was not so much the impact on the production per se, but the impact on the market chains, the impact on the trade. And this is what has really affected these communities, uh, the fact that they couldn't trade their products, the fact that the prices uh, in most of the places were decreasing because of less demand in the markets and because of surplus in other places, surplus due to the control measures, the quarantines, and the border closure. And going back to this agreement, World Bank is providing $5 million specifically for the work in Guinea. What will the money be used for exactly? So at the regional level, we've designed, we've developed a regional program to address the impact of Ebola on the food security and agricultural sector. This Ebola program has four main pillars. The first one is about social mobilization and sensitization. The second one is about boosting agricultural production. The third one is about increasing the resilience of vulnerable communities. And the fourth one is about coordination. In the case of this program from the World Bank in Guinea, it does answer uh, at least uh, three, if not the four, different components of, of the program and of the direction and strategy that was designed uh, by FAO to respond to this crisis. We are at a stage, we are at a point in time where we shouldn't decrease our vigilance. This disease might flare up again and might spread again to many different places. Uh, we will sensitize around 240,000 people to these prevention measures regarding the transmission of the disease. The second component of this World Bank project in Guinea that will be about boosting the agricultural production. People, they lost their incomes. They lost their source of revenues. And therefore, now they have difficulties to prepare for the next agricultural season. Then the third dimension of this program will be about increasing the resilience. As an example, this program will help create job opportunities and will support 2,000 young workers through a cash-for-work approach. And that was FAO's Vincent Martin, who is based in West Africa, speaking to Sandra Ferrari. It's 8.45 Central African time and our economics update up next with Tabiso Luhoku. Algeria plans to double its petrol and diesel output when three new oil refineries start production in 2018. The new refineries are under construction in Tiaret, west of the capital Algiers, and in the southern provinces of Hasi Masoud and Biskra. Organization of the Petroleum Exporting Countries member Algeria exports several oil refined products but also imports petrol and diesel uh, due to growing domestic demand. Diamond production in Namibia was marginally higher at 1.9 million carats last year. 
Namdeb Land Operations produced 600,000 carats and Adept Marine Namibia produced 1.3 million, driven by strong operational improvement by the new MV Mafuta vessel. This according to the Anglo-American, which has a 50-50 partnership with the government in Namdeb Holdings. Anglo-American says Namdeb production was broadly in line with the previous year despite a 19-day strike in the third quarter. The Automobile Association of South Africa has warned that the recent drop in the fuel price could could be short-lived. It says the current data predicts a March price increase for petrol of around 68 South African cents a litre, with diesel and aluminating paraffin up by approximately 45 and 48 South African cents a litre, respectively. International fuel prices have climbed by over 20% since the last week of January. AA says a spike in the rand. U.S. dollar exchange rate has also put pressure on the fuel price. In the first week of the month, the price of all grades of petrol dropped by 93 South African cents a litre. In early January, the price of 93 and 95 octane petrol decreased. Kenya Power has posted a 53% rise in first half for pre-tax profit to $70.13 million dollars helped by increased sales and higher tariffs. The power firm's revenue from the sale of electricity rose 40% to $1 for the six months to the end of December. Indicators at the hour on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. The US dollar trades at 11.63 South African Rand, 9.51 Botswana Pula, 6.73 in Zambia. 064 British pound 087 across the euro currently gold is at 1206 dollars platinum 1172 dollars an ounce brand crude 62 dollars 25 cents a barrel economic update Thank you, Tabiso. Our sports update up next with Msibudi Makura. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning, sports fans. And starting off with football news, the Confederation of African Football has set the dates for the 2016 African Nations Championship Tournament. The tournament will be held from the 16th of January to the 7th of February in Rwanda. This is the first time Rwanda will be hosting a senior continental tournament, having hosted the 2009 African Youth Championships and the 2011 African Under-17 Championships, which qualify the Junior Wasps to the 2011 FIFA Under-17 World Cup in Mexico. Rwanda will also send a delegation to South Africa, hosts of the 2014 edition, to establish a learning experience that will help organize a successful tournament. South Africa's under-20 national football coach Tabong Sinong says his team is aiming for the top four finish at the African Youth Championship starting in Senegal early next month. That will earn them a spot at this year's FIFA Under-20 World Cup set to take place in New Zealand. South Africa are in a tough Group B comprising of Ghana, Mali and Zambia. Sinong says qualifying for the World Cup will be important for the growth of South African football. 
This is our preparation camp to Senegal and uh, to go and play the African Youth Championship. We are optimistic, you know, that uh, we have a good group of players. The boys are looking sharp uh, mentally, you know, uh, they really want to uh, make South Africa proud and we, we believe that we will be among the top four teams uh, that qualify for the World Cup because uh, that is very important for South African football. Striker Bule Maserane, who scored one of the goals in the 2-1 win over Finland in the Commonwealth Cup last month, says it's always a big challenge coming up against West African opposition. Uh, I think as, uh, as the team, uh, we, we've done well in Russia, so I don't think we should focus on this tournament we won because we have a bigger picture in, in winning this, this African championship. So I think we should focus more in, in Africa because the teams in Africa are not so easy. So we've been there, so we have a, an idea like how they play and stuff. So I think as our guys, the team spirit is high, so I think we're going to do well. Hosts Senegal, Cote d'Ivoire, Nigeria and Congo are the fourth teams who are competing in Group A. The tournament runs from the 2nd to the 22nd of March. Meanwhile, South Africa will play Australia in an international friendly match at the Moses Mabida Stadium in the KwaZulu-Natal province on the 28th of March. South Africa were initially hoping to host the 2014 World Cup finalist Argentina next month, but the matchup is no longer on the, on the cards. The game will be Bafana Bafana's first since their group stage exit at the 2015 AFCON tournament last month. On to local football news, Supersport United scored Two second-half goals to end Kaza Chiefs' unbeaten streak in the APSA Premiership with a 2-0 defeat at the Peter Mugaba Stadium on Tuesday night. Jeremy Broke and Dove Warme scored second-half goals for Supersport United to ensure Chiefs' unbeaten league start came crushing to a halt. Kaza Chiefs coach Shud Baxter says he was encouraged by the better performance then in their previous two games despite the 2-0 defeat. Meanwhile, in the other match of the evening, Morocco Solos suffered a third defeat in 2015 when they lost 2-0 to Bedvitzvitz at the Dobs- at the Dobsonville Stadium. And finally, in cycling news, with a long list of riders in Team Gobega currently putting in decent performances, South Africa's MTN Gobega team principal Douglas Ryder says it is difficult to tell at the moment which cyclists will be selected at the Tour de France, but all will be revealed later this year and is dependent on form and physical condition of the cyclist. Ryder says the team would have to put in exceptional performances to convince the Tour organisers that an African team should be entered regularly in the event. So our lineup will, I mean, like I said, will be determined in June. We do have a long list of riders, and it does it does mean that they're going their performance getting close to the time, and you know, will determine their selection. And we will put the best team in the race that we have. And it's currently right now we have 13 riders from the African continent and 10 European riders. And my my goal and my director's goal is that we will have five South African and African riders and four European riders in the tour. Well, those are your sports news at the hour. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka, Na Unai. 
Recapping our top stories in Africa, Roslyn Shine at this hour. UN continues to cooperate with the DRC military. South African President Jacob Zuma faces harsh criticism and UN Security Council resolution backs new Ukraine ceasefire deal. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzura Magaza, technical producer Revelino Ibrahim and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to southern Africa is Jonas Bwangwa with a track titled Murwa.